Hello and welcome to the Unboxable Unstoppable podcast by me, Elena Turley. Now, we haven't got quite far enough to have so many intro and outro music yet, but hey, we'll get there. I'm just doing it anyway, which is kind of in the spirit of the podcast. So speaking of which, the spirit of the podcast, I've been thinking this week about how exactly I can put into words what it is we're doing here. So one of the things that has happened over the years is I've developed a lot of techniques that I use day to day, week to week, based on a million different modalities. And uh, I will outline some of those modalities today, just to give you a little bit of a potted history of where I'm coming from and what well I am drawing from in terms of my experience and the various things that have helped me along the way. Now, the thing is here, I'm going to get a little bit personal. So I hope that's okay with you. I'm going to tell some stories and uh, it, I could get emotional, but I'll, I'll do my best to keep the stories moving and not drone on about anything boring. Uh, all of it will be quite interesting, I hope. And mostly the aim here is to give you some value with what I'm talking about. So the loose theme today is guilt. So there seems to have been a little bit of a theme this week, just in terms of conversations that I've had with various friends and mentors and in various groups that I'm in online, offline. And the theme is guilt, particularly mum guilt. But I do believe this is a uh, very applicable topic to people who are not mothers as well. So certainly in the past, I've been guilty of being what we would call, I guess, a people pleaser. I think that sometimes as we evolve into adulthood, we can sometimes take on this idea that the only way we really have value is in the reflection of what we do for other people. So certainly for me, I wasn't great at developing self-esteem and deep self-worth. Now, this is surprising. So I'll tell you why. If you look on the face of it, if you looked on paper at where I came from and what my life was like as a child and a teenager, it was pretty it was pretty good. I had parents that split up when I was four weeks old. There's a little bit of lasting trauma in there, which I think is a bit of a key to this story. They kind of um, had their own stuff going on, loved me dearly, were relatively stable, educated people. They'd met at Teachers College. They'd worked overseas in Canada. They'd come back to Australia to have me. And then soon after having me, my father stopped working and it was very confronting for my mother. And so she decided she had to move out and get a job and put me into childcare with people at home at that point. There wasn't really a lot of childcare back in the early 70s. So it was a little bit difficult and depressing, I think, a time. I, I don't want to put my own filter on it, but I imagine it was a very difficult time for her. And uh, ironically, uh, I mirrored a very similar story in different ways, detail-wise, but had a very similar experience um, years later with my own first child where I split up with my partner when he was three months old, funnily enough, and moved out. So a similar thing. So here's the funny thing, right? So I kind of repeated that. There were a lot of different things that occurred in my situation and my mother's situation, and I can't speak for her. But I will say that as the years went by, she repartnered when I was six, remarried when I was nine, eight or nine. Uh, he became an accountant. We had a financially pretty, on the face of it, pretty stable situation at home. I went to a beautiful primary school, had amazing teachers. I went to a selective public high school in Sydney, 
a girls' school, which was pretty amazing opportunity-wise and made great friends and had a pretty, you know, a pretty good kind of upbringing. Now, I guess beneath the surface, and this is what's interesting, being a person myself who is reasonably sensitive, in fact, I've, I've been told in the past, you know, too sensitive or highly sensitive. There's a lot of different ways to word that these days. But I have found that some people find that very confronting. Certainly there were people I've met along the way that, you know, didn't think that being a sensitive person was a good idea. But I mean, that's hilarious, isn't it? Because you don't really necessarily get a choice about being sensitive or not. I mean, you can certainly suppress your feeling and suppress your sensitivity and you can deflect and manage it or maybe not manage it in those ways. But I would say that um, there are some inherent dangers in taking that path. And I was always one of those people that whether I liked it or not, I was very perceptive and very empathetic towards those around me. Now, I I now realise that that actually can be a superpower. That can be something that informs my work now and informs my ability to educate, my ability to mentor and coach as I do in the membership that I'm building at the moment. And certainly as a in martial arts instructor, it allows me to respond and be very responsive to my students and as a high school teacher as well. So there's a lot of ways that you can utilize and particularly as a parent, actually. So having sensitivity is a really good superpower when you're a parent, when you can use it in a healthful way. So so here's what's interesting about this story is that over the years, I grew into a person that deep down inside, I would say I wasn't very confident, but on the outside, I had the veneer of a confident person. So like I say, on paper, everything looked really good. I walked straight out of university, did fairly well at school, went to university, walked straight out of university into a fantastic job at a public relations agency, which was my goal. So I was fulfilling my goal. However, three years later, because of an underlying addiction and because of some really unhealthy habits and mental states that I was experiencing, I lost that job, not so much directly because of the way that I was, but because the company changed and they bought someone out and someone had to go and that was me. Now, what that did was it set me adrift. So I'd had this very clear path until I was about maybe 24, let's say, you know, intelligent enough, capable enough, university educated enough to get by, but still... I was kind of adrift. So that set off a chain of events which continued, I would say, until maybe I was about 32, 33, 33, when I eventually went to Narcotics Anonymous, got clean and uh, changed the way that I was operating in my life quite deeply and did a lot of work on myself. But it took a long time. So like that's a good 10 years there where I was kind of wandering around in the world job to job, place to place. I mean, I think the longest time I lived anywhere was four years. I didn't have any really close friends that stayed really close friends. I mean, I had people I loved who loved me, but we didn't see each other regularly. I had relationships. Some were healthier than others. Some were very important. I did some amazing things. I worked on an independent filmmaker's magazine. I helped to found that. I worked on in legal firms. I worked on a Star Wars movie in my capacity as a uh, filmmaker. So I worked with lots of independent filmmakers and it was an amazing time. 
But personally, so even though I was having an incredible time on the face of it, personally and deep down, I was suffering. And a large part of the reason that I think I was such a people pleaser is that I just didn't know how to be me and how to be comfortable with my own company. I think deep-seated traumas and unhealed hurts, unresolved experiences were holding me hostage. And I didn't really understand why. And I think the thing is, even with talk therapy, and there is a huge place for talk therapy, no doubt, like I, I am a huge fan of it. But for me, with the, the kind of experience I had had and the kind of traumas that I had had, so early in my life, they were very much trapped in the body. Like it had to, for me, it had to be somatic healing. That was the only way. So so I basically trundled through this kind of mixed and varied experience, had some amazing things going on. I flew over Antarctica, I, you know, an incredible arsenal of experiences. Some wonderful people came through my life. However, none of that really feels whole or you can't fully enjoy those moments when you are cripplingly self-conscious. So even though I had become very good at looking pretty confident, you know, I had become very good at playing the game and pretending that everything was okay and managing to seem sort of whole and, and, you know, functioning, I think some people could see through that veneer. I had to stop training martial arts because you can't really, I don't think, train martial arts effectively and deal that closely with people and have intimate relationships as you do in a martial arts class if you are not okay deeply within yourself. And so I got as far as I could with martial arts in the state that I was at that time currently. I had a couple of bad experiences and then I decided I couldn't keep training. Plus my over, my, I sort of my addiction kind of took over as it would at various times because that's a really good way to escape reality, right? So getting out of it is a really good way to kind of change the way that you cope with things or basically not cope with things. So over the years, progressively, this kind of war of attrition on my soul kind of happened. And then I was in a relatively very loving, but relatively unstable relationship, had a child, you know, unplanned, but wanted and loved. And and when I had that child, I really believed that having a child would save me. I really believed that that having a child would change me. Now, it did change me, but it wasn't enough to completely heal me. And I think what I sort of thought was that if I was in a loving relationship and if I had a child that I wouldn't have to do the work on myself that I knew I needed to do deep down. So anyway, I had the child and then and then there was this kind of house of cards effect where the relationship was failing, where we lived, we couldn't live there anymore, we got evicted, I lived on my own because I couldn't work out how to find a place to live with my partner at the time, I couldn't get him to commit, so I had to find a place for me and my baby son, you know, it was very traumatic and and through that time, the my ex-partner was going through his own stuff, you know, feeling really, I think, also bereft about the way that things were going and and also grappling with his own issues. And so essentially I find myself with, I then later got evicted myself about a year later, just wasn't able to function anymore and the holes were well and truly showing. So at that point, nowhere to go, living with friends of friends, even that started to fall apart because some of them were also addicted to various things. It became very, very unstable and unhealthy. And, and it kind of came to this crux where 
One of the guys I was living with had a psychotic episode, threw everything I owned out on the street. My flatmate rang me up and said, you better come home. All your stuff's on the road, literally on the road, middle of a busy road. It was terrifying. So I had to rescue all my things, find a place to live immediately. It was pretty much impossible and I couldn't stay there. I felt really unsafe. And I had a child, you know, one and something, maybe nearly a two-year-old child. It was really terrifying. So I basically was homeless, didn't have any friends or family close enough to me that I could go stay with them anymore. Friends had said to me, there was one friend in particular who I'm grateful now that he said this to me, but at the time it was shocking, just said, I can't even be around you. He was one of my closest friends. He was like, you're a, you're a hot mess and you need to get help and you, you just, you can't even continue this way. And it was a, a really terrifying situation. Now you can imagine the guilt that you feel when you cannot even provide a roof over your own head for your child. You're like, it's just ridiculous. I was I was in all sorts, like forget about uh, what other people thought. At that point, that had all gone out the window. All I was left with was this overwhelming sense of I am not good enough. I can't even look after myself or my child. It's a terrifying feeling. So I was homeless for a week. I got taken in actually by an Orthodox Jewish community who had a spare space in Bondi that I was able to stay in for a few days and then through them and a caseworker that I had, I was able to find a place to live. Just kind of fortunate that I found a place to live via that community and a, and a caseworker that I had. It was very, very fortunate. It was actually a, a run of fortunate events that week. That was It was quite bizarre. There was even the moment where, <laughs> this was hilarious, I got asked if I could vacate where I was staying, my emergency housing, to go and stay in a pub that they would pay for in Bondi. And it was happened to be the pub that we used to live across the road from when I had my baby and that my ex used to frequent in Bondi. It was absolutely hilarious. So I ended up right back where I started from for one night. And even then, like had a bit of a party, kind of got chucked out of there as well. It was just like ridiculous situation. Anyway, I digress. So the guilt, overwhelming guilt. At that point, a couple of people, a family friend and also an uncle and a cousin, all kind of at the same time stepped in. And they all said to me, we can see that you're not okay. They exposed me. I had to give it up. The game was given up. I could no longer pretend that everything was okay. The holes were more than a period. They were complete. I was all holes. There was nothing left of me. There was nothing left of my life. So I had to kind of surrender, which is an amazing thing. So to be able to recognize that your facade no longer exists, your veneer has disappeared, it's completely transparent. And that people can actually see the scared, guilt-ridden, totally incapable of surviving kind of person that you are inside, a scared young child, basically. And and you are, you are seen as that, it's absolutely, it's both terrifying and liberating, you know, an incredible experience to have, to be seen whether you like it or not, and supported to be seen, I must say. So from there, I went to um, Narcotics Anonymous, I went through a host of things. So I went to an incredible therapist, who is an addiction specialising gestalt therapist. So gestalt is the idea that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And Gestalt therapy works 
with the idea that you are part of a system and that you need to understand that system and actually heal that system in order to progress and in order to move through and beyond what you're experiencing. And I found that approach really helpful. It wasn't enough on its own, but it did get me from A to B at that point. And I had some incredible revelations around family and my position in my family and why I had become so good at looking after people and balancing people out. You know, when I was a young child, I'd learned very early on that if mum was angry, I should be happy. If mum was happy, I could be sad. There was a balance and I was I was the balancer. And I learned that very, very early on. So these are things that I had taken into my life. And I had taken these to the nth degree because I was so sensitive and empathic. So then next thing that happened, doing NA, I realized that it wasn't really enough for me to do all talking. Now, NA itself is an incredible process. The 12 steps are an amazing, powerful system. And even if you're not an addict, my grandmother once, bless her soul, came to one of my meetings where I got a chip, as they say, where I, I got a little tag that tells me how long I'd been clean, you know, and you sort of celebrate that in NA. And I got I got this tag and she came and sat there and she was so beautiful and loved everybody's stories and loved the whole thing. And she said, you know, Elena, everybody should go to meetings like this. Everybody needs groups like this. And the power of a group is that you come together with a singular intention and it really, it escalates the effectiveness when you all do it together. You are able to pull and just exponentially amplify the energy and the success and the results that you achieve when you do it together. Not only do you have support, but you have people who understand around you, which allows you to safely explore what you need to explore and safely expose what you need to expose where you would otherwise hold it close and hold it beneath the surface. And that's incredibly powerful, I believe. Again, something that we'll do in my membership. So here's what's beautiful. Over this, this kind of five-year period of NA, I got these incredible support friends and amazing processes that come out of a 12-step program. Highly recommend you have a look and think about the blue book and, and have a look at the 12 steps. I mean, they really don't make much sense until you do them. They need to be applied, but even a cursory understanding, it's magic. It's amazing stuff. Funny fact, interesting fact, apparently there is a rumour, and I don't know if this is true, but there is a rumour that some, um, uh, what's the word, hallucinogenics, so some mind-altering substances were used in the creation of the Blue Book. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. But anyway, very interesting, the um, the idea that these kinds of plant medicines have been used to create some of the most powerful ideas of our time. They certainly were used in ancient Greece. That's one really interesting thing to listen to, which I, I've heard a great podcast about that. I'll try and find it and list it in the notes. So through that time, and following that time, I did a lot of various modalities. I read a lot of books. I found that there were some incredible things out there. There's womb healing. There's something that I did, which was a, a group, a kind of an alternative personal development group. It doesn't exist anymore, where we would do workshops, people volunteered, an incredible process of really uncovering what's going on in your heart and how to access it and how to actually drive yourself 
with just from a place of love in everything that you do. And it doesn't mean you're woo-woo, wishy-washy. I mean, tough love is important too in this process, but it allows you to listen to people and hold a space, which means allow things to occur, hold a container big enough for things to occur without attaching to them. So when I met my partner, I was able to go through some things with him where he could tell me things and I could listen to them without reacting. I could allow him to air and expose. So this, when it comes to guilt, is absolutely key. If we are able to uncover and expose what we feel bad about, what we feel guilty about, if we can have the courage and the support and the transformative experience of doing that, it really is a very powerful thing to do to put air and light on something that doesn't get aired and doesn't get lit very often. So finding the spaces and finding the people and the practitioners and the friends and the support groups and whatever it is, the memberships that you need, the communities that you need to do that, absolutely key. I've recently started a full moon gathering and literally all we do is have a drink down at the beach when the full moon's coming up. But it's so beautiful. We've talked about all kinds of things already. We're only on the fourth one, you know. And it's just amazing. Like even just we're going to catch up once a month gives a continuity and, you know, curate. Make sure it's people you feel safe with, that you feel whole with. And make sure you see those people because they're the people that will help you transmute those past hurts, those unresolved energies and those unresolved experiences into your superpowers. So my ultra sensitivity that led me to be a people pleaser. I would do anything for people. I would feel and still do sometimes feel incredibly devastated, like debilitatingly frozen if I disappointed someone. It's a really, I really, it's the thing I feel the most deeply is if I disappoint another person. And it's very, it can be really crippling if you do that with everybody willy nilly without any kind of discernment. But if you can use your discernment and you can uh, start to avoid and start to actually completely change the way that you approach things that do make you feel like you've disappointed a person or do make you feel like you've disappointed yourself, you don't have to create the guilt in the first place. I mean, you are allowed. You're a human being. You're not perfect. We're just, we're just, perfecting the imperfection here like none of us are perfect nobody knows every answer nobody is awesome all the time we all have our foibles we all have our moments that we are not at our best and if we can understand that forgive ourselves and just embrace that that is the way we are and accept it and I mean really do the work to accept that then what emerges is this unafraid or at least less afraid, walking with your fear sense that you can be who you are without the veneer, without the superficial, without the need to do the dance and and make the version of yourself appear better than it is. And that, my friend, is incredibly liberating. That is also non-guilt-inducing. So you are allowed to have moments where you're not at your best, but you don't have to feel guilty about that. You're allowed to be the imperfect parent, the imperfect colleague, the imperfect partner and own it. I'm not saying that, you know, you just get away with it scot-free. Own it. Thank people for putting up with it if you need to. It's better than saying sorry. Say sorry if you have to, but 
really saying thank you for letting me me mess that up is is much more empowering, especially with your kids. Instead of saying, sorry, I yelled, you can say, thank you for letting mummy go through a difficult moment. And thank you for understanding that I love you, even though I'm yelling. Allow yourself and own it. But you don't need to feel guilty. In fact, guilt is one of those really kind of useless emotions. I mean, there's the kind of guilt maybe that's a bit of a flag that says, okay, you messed up. That can be useful, but don't sit in it. Don't allow yourself to carry it like a bag that's too heavy through life, you know. So if you have those unhealed hurts and those unhealed experiences, those unresolved experiences in your past, I promise that there are ways to heal them without a huge amount of effort. It's literally make the decision, find the modality that works and do it. It's that It's that simple. It doesn't have to cost a million things. You can find it in a book. You can find it in a Facebook group. You can find it in a friend. You never know where you're going to find it. But if you open yourself up to the idea that that guilt that you're carrying is not necessarily that thing that you need anymore, that maybe it's time to let it go, that maybe it's time to find a way to transmute it into something more helpful, well, that's possible for you. I know it. If it was possible for me, it was most definitely possible for you. All right, I'm starting to get too excited and mince my words a little here. This is what happens when I start to get excited, get on a roll. <laughs> so thanks for bearing with me and getting this far. I hope that you found something in all those stories that has been useful for you. I hope you can walk a little lighter today or at least in the coming days as you process all of this and as you integrate it into your life. I hope that you can feel an energy of lightness coming from here because it is, it's coming for you, I tell you. And I'm sending you loads of love always. And I will talk to you next time. Share this, love it, review it, please. Let's keep it going. Thank you so much. Bye for now.